0: We're going to go back to Mark tonight, and we'll be in Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, we're going to read verses 32 to 42. The title will be Our Lord's Agony and Prayer in Gethsemane. It's the beginning in verse 32, and it says, Mark 14, 32, they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit you here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And he said unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto you. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he came and found them sleeping and said unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldest thou not watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready or willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy and neither wist they or knew what to answer him. And he came the third time and said unto them, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrays me is at hand. And let's pray. Father, I ask, Lord, that you'll speak to all of our hearts tonight, Lord, and, and open our eyes and our understanding to your word and spiritually open our eyes, Lord, that we can see what you were willing to suffer. And it began here in the garden on our behalf. For the forgiveness of our sins. And I ask you'll make that all real to us tonight, Lord, and that we can see your glory and your love and your faithfulness in this. In Jesus' name we pray. What we just read here, this is what takes place in the garden. This is the last event that Jesus is going to have with his disciples. And after that, they all scatter before the cross, I should say. Normally when you hear at Gethsemane, so you think of Jesus' agonizing in the garden to do God's will, and he gets that settled and moves on. And yet, there's a little bit more to it than that tonight that we're going to look at, okay? This day, it's been a quite an eventful day, which kind of explains probably why these guys are having trouble staying awake. Because when all this takes place, it's probably after midnight anyways. So it's been filled up with some memorable events centered on the disciples, because Jesus, for the most part, up to this point, has been ministering unto them. You know, they gather and they meet in the upper room that has been ready for them. And it's the last supper. But before they eat, what does it say? It says Jesus lays aside his outer garments, takes off more than one garment. Now, he wouldn't have been naked, but he basically probably reading these commentaries. And I'm assuming these guys would know more than I would. He's down to his loincloth. I mean, he's basically stripped himself down to where he is a slave. That's what a slave would wear. And it says then that he took a towel and girded it, wrapped it around himself. Apparently this towel was long enough he could wrap it around himself, have enough left over that when he washed their feet, he was able to dry their feet with that towel. And they start to protest it, and he's like, wait a minute. He says, now I'm a servant. I'm showing you what a servant does. I've come to wash your feet, and you need to follow my example and wash each other's feet. But here's the thing we need to see is his role as a servant went way beyond what we'll ever do, didn't it? Because Philippians tells us this. He had to die, didn't he? To fully fulfill his role as a servant. Had to die on the cross for our sins. Philippians says he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant or a slave and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, it says the Lord of glory, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But he's ministering to them right there, isn't he? The Lord of glory. You imagine that? That'd be a foot washing to be at, wouldn't it? And I've been in some pretty good foot washings. The next day and they celebrate, we didn't deal with this. We've dealt with it on other occasions, and I probably would just save it for some time when we're having communion. But they celebrated the Passover meal, and near the end, he took bread, it says, and break it and said, Take eat, this is my body, which is given for you. And then he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which, once again, he says, is shed for you. So he's telling them, he's pointing, everything he's doing here is pointing to the cross, isn't it? And He's saying, my body's going to be broken, I'm going to be put on a cross, but it's not for me, it's for you. My blood is going to be shed. It's going to be painful, but it's going to be shed for you. It's all done for you, to benefit you is what He tells him. And then when you read in John's Gospel, somewhere in there we have what's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. And there again, that prayer centers on the fact that he is going to die. He's going to raise again. But he's saying, you all are going to be left here. I'm going out of the world. His time was nigh up in the world, wasn't it? But he's saying, well, I'm praying for you all as your high priest, that God would keep you and make you one with us and with each other. He goes on towards the end of that he says, I'm not just praying for these 12 here, the ones that I'm looking at. He said, I'm praying for All of my children, all of my disciples, not only here but down through the centuries because we all have to make our way through this world. And I'll tell you, we could be glad that we have the Lord Jesus Christ praying for us, can't we? To keep us, and He's faithfully doing that, praying for you and I. So all of these events, like I said, they're pointing to the cross. But who are they for? Who are all of these things that's happened this day for so far? For the disciples, But we come to Gethsemane here tonight, and Gethsemane is for Jesus. That is primarily who it's for. Gethsemane is where our Lord wrestles with His humanity to accept the will of the fathers. He's desperate. He is on His face, desperately seeking His Father for help to fulfill His mission as our Redeemer. You can't get away from that and it's quite the event. We started in verse 32, look there, it says, they came to a place which is named Gethsemane and that name means olive press and it's aptly named. Lisa and I went there back when we went to Israel. It's not a whole lot to look at and I wouldn't say you go there, oh there's this anointing there. You see these olive trees, it's really not that much to see. But that's where he was. There was an olive grove there where they pressed these olives And that's the place where Jesus, though, I think it's significant, though, that that is where he was pressed. He was squeezed. He was crushed, he says, nearly to the point of death. And it's here that he surrenders his will. And that's where the battle really was won at this point. Because after that, after he won that battle with his heart, he was able to face the cross with dignity, didn't he? You don't see him acting like this anywhere but in the garden. And I think the purpose for God, including this in the gospels, is clear. So he wants all of us, and hopefully we can come to some small understanding. He wants all of us as far as we can, as far as we can understand, to see what it cost our Lord to bear our sins. Because what's going on here in the garden is no small part of that. Is it? It really is no small part like I said, we're seeing him act in a way that he has never acted before. And he will never act this way again. So they've just come from the upper room. They've crossed that Brook Kidron and in the upper room he was calm and in total control of himself. So we're in chapter 14. Look what it says in verse 26. They got done eating. It says when they had sung an hymn which was part of the whole Passover process. They would sing the Hallel which were some psalms that says they went out into the Mount of Olives. Psalm 18 would have been the last psalm that they would have sung. You can read it on your own, but Psalm 118 clearly speaks of, it talks about his rejection. That's where that verse comes. The stone that the builders rejected has become the head cornerstone. And it talks about his rejection, his suffering. But Psalm 118 ends this way. Thou art my God. And Jesus would have been singing this like nobody else could sing it. And this is what he would have ended with. Thou art my God, I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. That's what he would have sung. But guess what? When he's done, the singing has stopped. And the next thing we read is Jesus becomes greatly distressed. Look what it says in verses 32 and 33 here. It came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit you here while I shall pray. And look what it says in verse 33. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. And at the end of that verse 33, it says he began to be sore amazed, King James, and to be very heavy. He begins to be sore amazed and very heavy. In other words, this isn't just like a panic attack that lasts a second and it's gone. This is going to go on for a little bit of time while he's in the garden. Began to be sore, amazed, and heavy. And Mark uses language, you can see in the Greek, but basically it's conveying something. That Jesus is suddenly, he's alarmed. He's seeing something in his spirit, and he's horrified by the things he sees. Horrified and alarmed. Sore, amazed, In the King James, actually I think that's a pretty good way of translating. It's a Greek word ek thombeo, and just thombeo, don't have the ek in front of it, that word means to be terrified or astonished. When you put the ek in front of it, which is what you see in the Greek, all that means is it's intensified. He's not just amazed or terrified, he is sore amazed. Sore amazed. The Moffat translation of sore amazed and very heavy is this. It says, Jesus was appalled by what he's seeing, and agitated. He is disturbed and distressed. He's almost like they don't have the words to describe. We will never, we will never understand what he went through. There is no way. We will never understand that. But all I'm telling you is, this is nothing ordinary that's happened to him. And there's a man named Frank Lehi. He's got this little tiny book on the cross. It's a great book. It's not very long, but it's just packed with good insights, excellent insights. But he says this, he says something approached him. And that's what that word sore amazed means. Something just comes upon you all of a sudden that you see that just, wow, I can't believe this. But he says something approached him which threatened to rend his nerves and the sight of it to freeze the blood in his veins. That's a pretty descriptive way of describing what happened to Jesus. He doesn't hide this from the three that he took with him, does it? He shares his terror, his anxiety, and his troubled heart. He shares it with his disciples. That's why he brought him. Look what it says in verse 34. And he said unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful. Not just exceeding sorrowful, to the point of death, he says. Tarry ye here and watch. And you think about it. They had to see that on his face. I'm sure he couldn't hide it. I don't think he was even trying to. He tells them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful. Fellas, I am deeply grieved is what he's telling. I'm overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It's that bad. And that's what he's telling them. I would think those disciples never having seen him this way. I would think you put yourself in their shoes for a second. I think that would be very upsetting to them. Lord, we've never seen you like this. That's what I'd have been thinking. You know, one time I saw both of my parents. I'd never seen my dad cry in my life. But one time I saw both of my parents upset and bewildered because of a bad medical report. They'd gotten about one of their children. And I saw my parents both holding each other. That upset and crying, sobbing. They weren't just crying and sobbing. I happened to walk in on that moment. I had never seen either one of my parents like that. My dad was always somebody that was composed and in charge of himself. I'd never seen my parents like that. And that really upset me. And I think that happened here when they would have seen the Lord Jesus Christ that way. He was always in control. Always sure of himself. And here he's telling them, look, I am upset. Extremely upset why did he expose himself to them like this he left the rest of them a little ways away and he brought those three with him why did he do that he could have just left them back with the other group couldn't he he could have done that i got a couple of things that are probably. i think probably they were the leaders he'd always taken those three aside hadn't he and taken them up They've seen both sides now of the Lord Jesus Christ, haven't they? He took them up to the Mount of Transfiguration and His deity and the glory of His deity, they saw that shining through His flesh, didn't they? And now they're seeing the other side of it because we know Jesus was fully man and fully God, wasn't He? And they're seeing the other side of this. They're allowed to see Him wrestling with His humanity. His humanity's is fully in, in gear here to do the will of God. And these three, two, of all the disciples, they were the ones that had boasted of their willingness to suffer for Him and with Him. So we have Peter. We talked about this last week. We have that just right here in this chapter. Look at verse 31. But he, Peter, spoke the more vehemently, Oh, if I should die with you, Lord, I will not deny you in any wise. And likewise said they all. But Peter's just right out front. I never deny the Lord. And James and John, back in chapter 10, when Jesus asked if they could drink of the cup that he had to drink of, what was their answer? Oh, yeah, we can. And he goes, well, then you're going to get your chance. That's what he told them. We're willing to do whatever it takes to sit on your right hand in glory, Lord. We'll do that. And Jesus says, you will indeed drink of this cup. And so now in Gethsemane, he's showing them what's involved in drinking the cup. Now, no one's going to drink the cup like he did. No one's going to drink it like that. But they're seeing what the cup and the baptism is going to involve. Right. And it's not a pretty sight. And he's letting them see that. But I think most importantly, he's got them with him so that they can give us and all the saints down through the ages an account of what our Lord had to suffer. What depths of agony and torment that he was willing to go through on our half to pay the price for our sins. Hopefully we get through tonight, we'll have a better appreciation of that. Matthew says in his account that Jesus was sorrowful and very heavy. And Mark we saw, it says he was sore amazed and very heavy. And Luke, Luke's got a much shorter account of this whole prayer in the garden. But he reports that when Jesus prayed, Luke goes even further and said that Jesus was in agony so much so so much was his agony that it said he began to sweat king james says great drops of blood that fell to the ground and actually the greek is it was clots of blood were falling to the ground that is how upset he was matthew says that jesus fell on his face luke begins to say and he's kneeling mark says that he fell to the earth Matthew tells us when he fell to the earth, he fell to the earth with his face to the ground. He couldn't stay kneeling very long. That's how much distress he was in. Luke has him crying out, Abba, Father. Well, it's the same here in Mark. That whole thing of, I'm sorry, but to say Abba means Daddy. That's not what it means. There's nothing childish going on here in Jesus's prayer. Let me put it that way. okay? because Abba was a sign. A son would speak that way to his father. But it's a sign of genuine love and respect. That's what we're talking about here. Deep love and respect. And he's pleading with his father in agony. Abba, father, please take this cup from me. That's what we have going on here. What caused this distress in the Lord Jesus Christ? Why was there this reaction? Don't we know that He already knew that He was going to have to suffer and die? He already knew, He'd already talked about His death and He'd already talked about the cup. In Mark 8, 31, He said this, "'The Son of Man told His disciples this, "'must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders, "'and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, And after three days, he said, I will rise again. And in Mark 9 at the transfiguration, what happened there? Moses and Elijah, what is, I believe it's Luke's account that tells us this. What were they talking to him about? They are having a discussion. What were they talking about? His departure. And the word is his exodon, his exodus out of this world. They're there to encourage him. You need to go on with this. Because if you don't, we will perish encouraging him, aren't they? And in Mark 10, it's not like he didn't know about it, hadn't talked about it, hadn't had Moses and Elijah to encourage him about it. And in Mark 10, we already talked about this. He says, can you drink of the cup that I drink of? So he knew this cup was coming his way. So what's the problem? Why does he pray what he prays? Look what he says again. Let's read it again, verses 35 and 36. It says he went forward a little. He's doing this on his own here and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. What is in the cup? The cup of the last supper, they had a cup there, right? And that cup was a cup of blessing for the disciples, wasn't it? That was the cup of the new covenant. Paul calls that cup, the communion cup, he calls it the cup of blessing in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing which we bless. And in Psalm 116, I believe it is, the psalmist there talks about, I will raise up the cup of salvation. What's wrong here? What's going on here? Because here the Father brings the cup of Gethsemane in front of Jesus. This cup is in front of him, so to speak, and he looks in and he is filled. We've just read it with terror and dread and cries out, Abba, Father, take this cup away from me. That's what his cry is. What is in that cup? He knew this day would come, didn't he? But now he is face to face with the reality. The father has brought to bear on him the reality of what's involved in bearing our sins. The Father's made it plain to him, and he is shocked. Shocked, he is. Because this cup is the cup of Isaiah 51, where it's called there, it says, the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. It's the cup of Jeremiah 25:15. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel unto me, take the wine cup of this fury at my hand, And calls all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it, and they shall drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword I will send among you. It's the cup of Revelation 16, the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Now, that cup's gonna be poured out on the whole earth. It hasn't been poured out yet, and you don't wanna be partaking of that cup. But that's the cup. Anybody outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the cup that they will drink of. The cup of the wrath of God. And Jesus is facing this cup. That's the cup He's seeing. The full wrath of God. He looks in and sees the force and the fury of it because it's coming His way. And He recoils at the sight of it. He shudders and shrinks. And if it's possible... Father, is there no other way? Is there no other way than for me to drink this cup? It's got him distressed. He's in agony. The father isn't just saying, Here, son, look at that cup. Just take a sip of it. Just taste it. He isn't asking him to do that, is he? He's saying, You have got to drink the whole thing down to what the Bible calls the dregs, the bottom. He's saying, you have got to drink this whole thing. You've got to ingest it in your stomach, in your soul. The wrath of God, that is coming to him. That's the reality of all this is what we see hitting Jesus here in the garden. When we read this here, the reality of what he faced should begin to affect us. That he was willing to do that on us. Because we can't really understand Calvary and what happened there unless we understand what's happening here in the garden. Never fully understand any of it because it's not the spinning. It's not the shame. It's not the pain of the thorns. For Jesus, it's what's causing him this distress is the full wrath of God against sin. And the fact that he is going to have to experience being abandoned by God. That is what's causing him all this agony, and that's what's causing him to sweat blood on a night that was so cold they had to make a fire to warm themselves by it. Think about that. John Calvin said this. He said, he had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God and the judge himself armed with inconceivable vengeance. And because of our sins, the load of which was laid upon him, Jesus, it pressed him down with their enormous Wait. Jesus had prayed before in John chapter 12, and the Father answered him. Listen to John twelve twenty-seven to 28. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this cause came I unto this hour. And he said, Father, glorify thy name. And then the Bible says, Then came there a voice from heaven, saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it Again. But guess what? This time when he prays in the garden, there is no answer, is there? What does he have? What's his answer? Silence. Only silence. He prays three times and there's no answer. God's will had been given. Jesus is hasty. I don't think there's any break there when he says, take this cup from me nevertheless. Not my will, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Because The thing about our Lord Jesus Christ is he was always the obedient son, wasn't he? He said, that is my bread. You all have other bread to eat. My bread, the Lord Jesus says, is to always do the will of the Father. That's what he lived for. Never did he ever fail in his obedience. And never did he ever fail to love his Father fully. Now, none of us can say that. Even here, never did he doubt God's justice in the sense that Calvary had to happen. Our sins could never be forgiven any other way. He's not arguing with the Lord about that. He's not arguing with the Father about that, is he? That's the only way justice could be fulfilled. Hebrews 5, 7 tells us this in Jesus' obedience that who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications it says with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared though he were a son yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered when it says he learned obedience that didn't mean he had to be corrected he never was corrected was he But when it says he learned obedience, it means he learned the cost of obedience. That's what he learned. And he did learn that. The devil tried to tempt Jesus to put earthly desires, fleshly desires ahead of his father's will. He did that in the wilderness, didn't he? And he's doing the same thing here in Gethsemane. And both times the Lord Jesus Christ refused. He says, I'm doing the father's will no matter what the cost I pray that for myself and all of us, we can understand just a little bit of the cost that he had to go through. It's just really hard to fathom. Great cost. I imagine at some point all of us have felt this way to one degree or another, that God has forsaken us. But in reality, he never has. It may seem that way because he's promised what? What did Jesus promise us in Hebrews 13? I will never leave thee or forsake thee. And at the end of the Great Commission, in Matthew 28, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. If God ever, ever truly forsook us, we would be terrified. We'd be beside ourselves if we ever really experienced that. Look at what's happening now, though, with what he's faced with. Now, listen, the Godhead can never be separated So I'm not teaching JDS. Don't send me mails, emails, you know, and all that other. I'm not into all that. Jesus was always and forever eternally God. The Godhead could not be separated. But he is truly experiencing the Father's face turned from him in his humanity on the cross. He did. Isaiah 54 says this, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee, it says, in a little wrath. I hid my face from thee. Having the Father's face turned away is part of the experience of the judgment of sin. And His wrath, that's what we just read. In my wrath, I hid my face from thee. And Jesus is experiencing on the cross the reality of that. Why? So that we wouldn't have to. I'm telling you, that's what would have happened to us if He hadn't have done what He's done here in the garden. It's that big a deal. It's a huge big deal. He tasted it to the full on the cross. While on the cross, in darkness that covered the earth. And that is the cup that Jesus is begging to be taken from him because he'd never not known the favor and the face of God pointed his way and that experience and that love and having a full knowledge of it ever from all eternity. And he's faced with that now. The Father's love has never diminished towards the Lord Jesus Christ. He, in a sense, if you can hear what I'm saying, he never loved him more than when he's obediently suffering on that cross. Okay? You can put up with a lot of things if you know God's hand is on you. And one time, Caleb, I don't know if you remember, Caleb had me come and speak to that evangelism group you had. I hear the guy before me, and I'm thinking, they all thought he was great. And I'm thinking, you're not going to think I'm too great, and I got to speak second. And I stood up there and outside of Caleb and a seminary student running the thing in the back, there wasn't a single person that was glad I was there. They showed it big time. Let me put it this way. But when I could feel the hand of God on me, I could feel the anointing, I really didn't care. I mean, I would have liked to have all been saying amen and praise the Lord not. but I didn't get any of that. I got glares and people getting up and walking out and I'm telling Caleb, I'm sorry I got to leave you with all this. You know, <laughs> I won't be coming back here, but you got to live with these people. But my point is, if you've got the face of God, you can have a lot of things happen to you. And I think that is how these martyrs that we read about, you read Fox's book of Martyrs, that's how they're able to suffer excruciating pain. They've got the presence of God on them, and they're singing and rejoicing. Jesus doesn't have that here. They have that, we have His presence, because of what the Lord Jesus Christ was willing to undergo. So I want to look at three lessons here, just in closing, that can be learned from this section that we've read here and i'm sure there's a lot more than this but the first thing i want us to see is that when you look at this we should be able to see sin for what it is to some degree the terrible consequences of sin so i could sit there and tell you how terrible sin is you know the awful consequences of pornography i tell you all about that, what it's going to do to you. And there's, there are a lot of consequences that they're finding out about now that are more than what you might think. But you're thinking, you'd be like, man, it just seems enjoyable. I haven't got hit by lightning. But when you look at the effect of your sin, all of us, on the sinless Son of God, the agony, the distress, the dread, the horror, the terror of what it means to bear the wrath of God, and that is all because of our sins. That should open our eyes to how wicked our sins are. For the saints, I would say this, how can we be careless? I was getting convicted all over myself going through preparing this message. How can we be careless and indifferent to our sin when we see how it affected our Lord and Savior? And yet we are. Matthew Henry said this, he said, Was Christ in such an agony for our sins? And shall we never be in agony about them? Was Christ in such agony for our sins and we're never in agony about them? He went on to say, it becomes us to be exceeding sorrowful for our sins. And I would say this to anyone here that doesn't know the Lord for sinners, you need to wake up and see something. And that is this, that if Jesus is that horrified, by the coming wrath of God that he will experience and begs to be delivered from it? How do you think you will be able to endure it for eternity? Let your mind think of what hell will be like. Nobody wants to talk about the wrath of God and hell and the judgment of God, but I'm telling you, you'd rather hear about it on this side than the other side. But think of what hell is going to be like. The Bible describes hell as utter darkness, pitch black darkness. You will never see another face, let alone another smiling face for all eternity. Anybody that goes there, no light, no more smiling faces. It's called a pit. You'll be endlessly falling, falling, falling. It's the only fear you're naturally born with, a fear of falling. Supernatural torment that will never end never end. And the worst of all is, you know that it will never end. Who can endure, it says. He judges us by our iniquities. Who can stand? Who can endure? You need to think about that. That should put a healthy fear of God in all of us. And for those in hell, to me the worst thing is going to be the ones that had heard the gospel and yet decided, I don't need that. I don't need Him. And He is the only one. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that's going to save us from that wrath because of what we're talking about tonight. John the Baptist, he told the people coming to be baptized. What did he say to them? Who warned you to what? Flee from what? The wrath to come because it's coming. If you're a sinner and haven't repented and you die, it is going to come. It's a terrible thing. Absolutely terrible for anyone that is not under the protection of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says he's going to come back taking vengeance. When you see what he's done here to enable us to be able to make it to heaven and to have a renewed nature when all we did was spit in his face and could have cared less about him, and that's not going to be any small thing for those that just sit out, it doesn't matter, and mock and laugh. It's sitting here and mock and laugh. I look at it constantly. His word is true. He'll come back in vengeance with fire on those that mock. And the second thing I want to see, though, that we can see here is the love of God is in full display at Gethsemane. So here's the point, and I think we've already kind of made it, is we all, everyone in here, has a cup of wrath that we deserve to drink. All of us did, didn't we? Yet as believers, we know that Jesus took our cup took our cup we could never drink it ourselves never could no man like i said could stand before the wrath of god but yet jesus drained that cup our cup that was our cup your cup he drained it all out drank it all in if <laughs> that doesn't speak of his love and that's why he did it and he did it willingly he wanted to if you're a believer for your sake and mine. That's what he did. He did it willingly. When they come to arrest him and Malchus was there and Peter draws his sword out. Whack! says he whacked off Malchus's ear. And Jesus said this to Peter. He says, put up thy sword into thy sheath. The cup which my father has given me, he says, shall I not drink it? Well, at that point, he'd already settled it. He'd already settled it. And out of love and obedience to His Father and because of His love for us, He said, I am going to drink the cup. He was settled. And so listen to Hebrews 12 too. It says this, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. So let me ask you, what was the joy that was set before Him? You and me. (laughs) That was the joy that was set before him. Read Isaiah 53. That's a reward he's going to get for his suffering. We are the reward of his suffering. And he's like, I'm going to go through this for your all's sake. That's why he did it. Boy, that is something else. And the other way I would say he shows his love by drinking that cup is this. No one that ever lives was ever going to experience the stress The anxiety, the the terror, the distress that he went through there. No one will even come close. But we will have times when we're going to be distressed, won't we? We're going to be sorrowful. We're going to feel abandoned by our friends. And we have to deal with that. And what this tells us is we can go to him. Because we see he's experienced it to the nth degree. It couldn't be any worse than that. You know, you hate that old worn out political expression. I feel your pain. He does, though, feel your pain. If you're ever in that place. I've been there plenty of times crying out. I know you guys have too. But it says this. i quote this a lot, but I'm going to quote it again. Hebrews 4 says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our weaknesses or our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And it says, let us therefore, because of that, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So when something's coming over you as far as to do God's will, what do I do? You're stressed out about whatever in distress. You can go to him and pray to him and he'll help you out. He will, that's for sure. And the last thing I want to look at, the third thing is that what we see here and the disciples, he's dealing with them. And that is it's essential to pray in order to have the spiritual strength to fight against temptation. Gethsemane is what? It's primarily a place of prayer. Jesus comes in distressed. He's stressed out. He's agonized. He prays and he leaves in peace. Primarily a place of prayer. Look, verse 32. It says, Sit here while I shall pray. Look in verse 35. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed. Verse 38, watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. In verse 39, it says, And again he went away and did what? He prayed. Jesus comes back to his disciples. We're talking about what we can get out of this right now. Three times he comes back to them, doesn't he? It's not because he needs their prayers. That's not why he's coming back there. He's concerned about them. He knows that they need to be praying because of the trial and temptation that's getting ready to come their way. He's concerned. And they need the strength that only prayer can bring. And look, he singles out Peter Why is that? Peter's been the greatest boaster and he is going to take the greatest fall. Look what it says in verses 37 and 38. And behold, he comes and finds them sleeping. And he says unto Peter, Now, why doesn't he call him Peter? What is Simon? Simon is his worldly name when he's not walking in the spirit yet. He got named Peter when he had that revelation. He's not living up to that right now, is he? He's sleeping. Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst thou not watch just one hour? He said, I'm not asking you, Simon, to watch all night, just one hour. Watch ye, verse 38, and pray, lest you enter into temptation, is what he tells him. And I'll tell you, I think Peter's bravado and all of that, telling all his boast and bravado, I think he was sincere. And I think his spirit really was willing to do what he said. What he didn't understand was that his flesh has no power against strong temptation to sin. And neither does mine. And neither does yours. Because that is the whole point of Romans chapter 7. The point of Romans chapter 7 isn't trying to figure out whether Paul was saved or unsaved. That's beside the point. That's like arguments people get into that they'll never get solved. The point of Romans chapter 7 is there's all these I, 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 eyes in there. And he's saying, my flesh is going to give me no power over sin. That's basically what Paul is saying because he goes on to say in Romans 8, there's very few eyes in there and it's all about whom? The Spirit. Because that's where your power to overcome temptation and walk in God's will comes from. And that's why Paul said this in Romans 7, for I know that in me, he says, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing, for to will is present with me. That's what it was with Peter. He says, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. saying, I'm looking for it in my flesh. How to perform that which is good, he says, I can't find a thing in there that's going to help me with that. So it's through prayer, watching and praying. That is the solution. That's where the performance comes because that brings the Spirit the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, the other thing it helps to know the Word. That's how Jesus fought temptation in the wilderness. But you can know the Word, and if you don't have the power of the Spirit, if you haven't been watching and praying, it ain't going to help you out at all. It's watching and praying. So let me just finish saying this: Let's remember our Lord's great struggle against sin and Himself what he had to deal with there in the garden. And let's look at that in desire. I'm saying, maybe it's because I'm looking at all this stuff. I know you know, you can sit there and be thinking about things for two or three days and you guys are just hearing it once for 45 minutes. But there's something in me I'm saying. I'm seeing what he went through. And it should give you a desire to overcome sin out of love for what he did. He's your Lord and Savior. And you see, man, you were willing to do that for me. Help me, Lord, to have a different attitude, to get rid of this lackadaisical attitude towards the sin that's in my life. Amen. That's the first thing. Along with that, like I talked about, let's just believe the great love that He had for us, that He was willing to do that. He was willing to drink our cup and serve Him out of love. I talked about this the other night. We need to be starting our day in prayer. We need to be going through our day in prayer. But Jesus said in Matthew 16, part of our daily prayer should be what? Lead us not into temptation, but to deliver us from the evil one. And we neglect that to our own peril, don't we? We can't take that for granted that oh, I've got up and just we need to be seeking the Lord constantly, don't we? And trusting him. And otherwise our flesh is going to take over. And next thing you know, did you have a good day? No, I didn't have a good day. And that's how we learn. But we need to pray so we can grow, overcome temptation and grow. Walk in the spirit. Isn't that what it says in Galatians 5? That's the key. Paul says walk in the spirit and you do that and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, Lord, I ask that you'll open up our understanding as as much as it can be opened up to understand what our lord jesus christ faced in that garden and his willingness to endure that wrath that was due us lord and he was willing to take that cup and drink our cup the cup of your wrath and your fury and to be forsaken by you so that we will never be forsaken and lord i just ask you and press that on us and help us to love him more for what he's done and i thank you that you'll do that and do a work in all of our hearts and open our eyes here to understand your word and to understand the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is, to have a deeper knowledge of him. And I ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.